Hello, listeners, and welcome to Monsters Advocate. Monsters Advocate is a weekly podcast focused around the unsung heroes of myths and legends, the monsters. We'll take a look at some monster-centric myths and legends, some not-so-ancient cryptids, and everything in between, and try to sort out possible origin species, biological impetus for why they do what they do, and why we love to hear about them. Both Christmas and Festivus are over, and while Epiphany and Hanukkah are still in full swing, for many people, the days leading up to New Year's are a time to reflect on their past year. What have they accomplished? What could they have done better? And, most importantly of all, did they do better than their old classmates from high school and Karen from accounting? Humans, like every other animal, are subject to rivalries, conspecifics that we constantly measure ourselves against strive to better, and relish defeating. Sometimes, this instinct can get pretty ugly. But, at least usually, the only rivals humans have are other humans. Lucky us. You see, in nature, rivalries aren't limited by species. In fact, many rivalries are the result of an age-old struggle of one species to overcome and dominate the other. One of the most iconic of these rivalries is the mongoose and the cobra. But there are also subtler struggles taking place. The sperm whale and the giant squid, the honeybee and the Asian giant hornet, the lion and the unicorn. This week's episode is all about monstrous natural enemies, and why and how some monsters just can't get along. First, let's jump into Asian mythology. In many Asian cultures, a rivalry that immediately comes to mind is the Garuda and the Naga. To picture a Garuda, start with a harpy, human torso and head, bird wings, tail, and feet. Now, make it very big, and give it either a full-out bird's head, or if you're more conservative, a people head with a bird's beak. Lastly, give it anywhere from four to no arms. Some Hindu Garudas have four human arms, while some Buddhist Garudas owe more harpy and have no human arms. The bird tail can likewise be taken or left. A Naga is a little simpler. Picture a king cobra with a human face. Don't forget to include the forked tongue of a cobra. That's pretty much it. Unless, of course, you're trying to picture the Naga King. Then, make it a thousand heads, but also double as an umbrella if your name is Buddha. Now, Garudas are almost always depicted wrestling Nagas. This is symbolic of a feud that, like many family feuds, started with a bit of one-upsmanship. The future mother of Garudas and the future mother of Nagas married the same husband, Kashyapa, a sage and a wish-born son or sometimes the grandson of Lord Brahma. When they married, Kashyapa offered his newest wives one wish each. Because, being a wish-born son, that's a cool thing he gets to do. Kadru, the mother of Nagas, quickly wishes for a thousand children. Not my thing, but the woman really likes children. The mother of Garudas, Vinada, thinks on her wish for a moment. Then, in the ultimate reality TV move, wishes for just two children that are better in every way than all thousand of Kadru's children. Nice. Eventually, Vinata loses a bet and becomes a servant and prisoner of Kadru. Garuda manages to free his mother, but swears vengeance for her treatment. And so the feud begins. There are as many different versions of this story as there are cultures that tell it. Interestingly, though, there doesn't seem to be a good guy or a bad guy in this conflict. The Garuda carries the god Vishnu on his back in Hinduism. So, points for that. And in Buddhism, sometimes the Garuda fighting the Naga symbolizes the spread of Buddhism throughout Asia. 
But the thing is, the Naga is also an important symbol in Buddhism and Hinduism. The king of Nagas holds up the earth. Points for that. And in Cambodia, the Naga is the protector of Buddha and the ancestor of the Cambodian people. Nagas can represent fertility, and their aid is invoked in having children. So there's no clear sides to this fight, no clear bad or good. But, if we're being honest, Venata totally started it. Next, let's look at the rather politically motivated classic, The Lion and the Unicorn. The Lion and the Unicorn are the heraldic representatives of the United Kingdom, with the unicorn representing Scotland and the lion representing England. And boy, the tension is palpable. The only proof you need is a quick glance at the UK Royal Coat of Arms of England and the UK Royal Coat of Arms in Scotland. In the English version, a golden lion stands to the right of the coat of arms, crowned, while a unicorn, uncrowned, stands to the left of the coat of arms, chained by the neck by a crown-like collar. A smaller golden lion stands on top of the display. In the Scottish version, the unicorn, still chained, now appears on the right and is sporting a crown. The lion is on the left with the same crown as in the English version. A smaller red lion squats over the display. Thistles lie in the field the two creatures are standing on. Yikes. I'll give you a few seconds to parse that symbolism. The bit we're most concerned with, though, is the traditional nursery rhyme that best frames the animosity between these two creatures turned symbols. It goes as follows. The lion and the unicorn were fighting for the crown. The lion beat the unicorn all around the town. Some gave them white bread, and some gave them brown and some gave them plum cake, and drummed them out of town. These creatures have been fighting ever since, and the echoes of this conflict are portrayed in both Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass, and more recently Neil Gaiman's novel Stardust. Ignoring the political symbolism, though, it's an age-old struggle. Herbivores grow defenses such as antlers, tusks, and horns, and predators do their best to outwit these defenses. Sometimes the predator wins, Sometimes the predator gets gored to death. Though the unicorn is generally portrayed as beautiful and harmless, the threat of that horn is certainly enough to keep me away. For our last official fight, let's jump quickly back to the bird and snake thing again for one of my favorite rivalries, the Thunderbird and the Horned Serpent. Quickly, I'd like to give a personal shout-out to J.K. Rowling. Thank you so much for naming the houses of your American Hogwarts after Native American creatures. Really. It didn't at all break Google beyond repair when people try to search for Thunderbird or Horned Serpent. Made it super easy to find valid sources for myths about them without double and triple checking. But I digress. The Thunderbird and the Horned Serpent are two figures that feature in many Native American cultures, including the Algonquin, the Blackfoot, the Potawatomi, and our friends the Ojibwe, to name just a few. Generally, Horned serpents live underwater in lakes and control the underworld, while the thunderbird lives on top of the mountains and controls the upper world. Now, while horned serpents are not always portrayed as outright evil, sometimes even helping mankind, thunderbirds are always portrayed as helping mankind and hating horned serpents. In some legends, thunderbirds are even created for the express purpose of simply fighting with the horned serpents. A Potawatomi legend about Wisconsin's Thunder Mountain helps illustrate this best. Regarding the Thunder Mountain in the western part of Marinette County, a thunder is a large bird like an eagle, only much larger. And when this bird was created, 
It was made to have power in order to defend us from the great serpents, who wanted to kill and eat the human race. It was also to water the earth for plants. Thunderers, we call these great birds. One of them is called the Chiguia, and the mountain we call Bikwaki. So Thunder Mountain is Chiguia Bikwaki. Many, many years have gone by since the mountain received its name. In the beginning of its history, the Thunderbirds used to make their nests here, and sit on their two eggs until their young hatched. Some Potawatomi, many years ago, in the summertime, visited the hill and were surprised to find several pairs of young thunders. It was always custom with the Potawatomi to offer tobacco for friendship and safety. And later on, in another visit by the Potawatomi, a pond was discovered on the top of the hill, and it was dangerous. The serpent who lives under the hill had caused this to be so, so that he could sun himself when the sky was clear. And on a sunny, clear day he was sunning, probably asleep, when a lone thunderbird discovered him, and decided to catch him alive and carry him off. So the thunderbird came down from the sky and caught the serpent. The thunderbird would carry him high. The serpent, struggling, would carry the thunderbird back down to the pond. At that time, a Potawatomi hunter, who was passing, happened to look on top of the hill, and to his surprise saw the two struggling, and went up to witness the great fight. He was noticed by them, and the Thunderbird spoke and said, My friend, help me, shoot the serpent with your arrow, and I will make you a great man. The serpent also spoke and said, Help me, shoot the Thunderbird, and I promise you my friendship to the end of all time. The hunter did not know which one to help, and so he shut his eyes and shot an arrow toward the fighters. It hit the Thunderbird. That shot weakened the Thunderbird, and he fell down and was taken under the hill as a prisoner. The Thunderbird is still there, and whenever there is going to be a thunderstorm, lightning is seen flashing onto the Thunder Mountain. And this is why Thunder Mountain is a sacred site for the Potawatomi people. Now, for an honorable mention. I know some of you were really looking for some of that sweet vampire versus werewolf action. But the truth is, the whole vampire and werewolf as mortal enemies thing is a relatively new concept. It may have even been popularized as recently as 1991, with the release of the original World of Darkness tabletop RPG. Until recently, there wasn't even much of a distinction between the two. In Greek canon, before the end of the 19th century, if you killed a werewolf and didn't dispose of its body properly, it would just come back as a vampire. Now, while I would love to know what happens when a werewolf bites a vampire, they also don't make much biological sense as enemies. While these two predators do share a food resource of peasants, werewolves would likely hunt in packs and don't necessarily need to consume human flesh. Vampires, by contrast, are typically solitary predators that feed almost exclusively on humans. So if there was competition, the two could feasibly either learn to cooperate, or the werewolves could simply exploit another resource. No need to get all new moon about it. So, that is going to do it this week for Natural Enemies. I hope you enjoyed these rivals, and if you're curious about any of these stories, check the show notes to find out more. Intro music is by Scott Effington. Also, special apologies to the Potawatomi or Potawatomi people. I'm very unsure how to pronounce many of your words, and I'm sorry if I messed them up. I just really enjoyed your legend. So thank you for sharing it. Lastly, if you like what you heard, please rate and review on iTunes, or consider donating to our Patreon. Every little bit helps, 
and more support means I'm more motivated to do the best job I can to bring you more monsters. Thank you for listening, and remember, anyone can be a monster.